Well, Benedict, I, I really have to say you very much look the part of a philosopher in that study of yours. Oh. It's impressive uh, bookshelves. Thank you. I do my best. But it's a, it's a, it's a piece of Sweden. All, all, of the, uh, all of the bookshelves are from Ikea. So. Yeah, they're Billy, right? <laughs> there we go. Billy's, yes. All of them, yeah. Brilliant. Uh, this is going to be a bit of an experiment because, like, obviously your, your work is primarily in English. So it felt like... Yes relevant for like the intellectual reasons to do it in English. But it also yes. feels a bit like I we have some kind of imposter syndrome given that we all have Swedish as native language. Yes. Well we can we can switch to uh, Swedish every now and then if uh, if you like. I mean or put in a few Swedish uh... No. But, well the only problem, Johan, is we will we, we will probably getting charges of alcophobia from our podcast listeners since we're doing this in the cosmopolitan language of English now. People thinking themselves clever have told me many times, well, you left Sweden. Doesn't that make you an alcophobe? That's like, well. The arc of the whole universe is Not quite that simple, I tell him, but yeah. Depends on how essentialist you are, I guess. Yes, right, exactly. But Ekala, that's actually a pretty good segue, so let's just dive into it. Benedict Beckel, uh, most welcome to Manifests. How do we translate this in English? Like the Manifesto, manifesto I guess. Would be the Manifesto podcast or something like that. Well, thank you. But I mean, um, I've, I've sent you some information beforehand, but essentially there's a whole bunch of people saying what this the, um, the problem or the, the trouble is these days. But then the question is, what is to, uh, I dare not almost say it, but what is to be done, as my previous Marxist uh, training has taught me to ask. We're trying to, to get out of the, the thinkers we're reading or talking with ideas for what can be, if not a future uh, society, at least a language by which we can talk about the politics of contemporary times and the future. And, and um, to have, in a way... Um, an approach to the questions that is not only cynical or smart, but actually puts yourself, in a way, on the shopping board. And go this goes both ways. We will try to do it the same as well. For that reason, it also felt relevant to, to ask if you wanted to be on. So, safe to say we're honored for you to take the time to talk with us. Very much so, Bernadette. It's It's actually even more fitting than, than Johan presents it, because we both met at the University of Uppsala, in in the intellectual history class and i was doing i which i thought a pretty interesting paper on foucault's visit to iran in the revolutionary uh, times of 79 and his stint with i think corriere de la serra which he was a correspondent from in, in his pretty sharp turn from sort of uh marxism uh, if you will or foucaultism to basically some sort of essentialist uh, islamist sympathies which was interesting and my opponent on that my opponent was Yuan, who's sitting out here with me i think 15 years later or something like that so so it's it's very fitting that we have uh you uh Bendict, who has chronicled the the oikophobia uh, in uh western civilization back to the ancient greeks so you're very much welcome are you both as ideologically opposite today as you were previously or philosophically perhaps is a better word than ideologically well, I guess we'll find out. I mean, the, the beautiful thing with, with I think, this podcast, in a sense, is that we're trying to, without being too theatrical, to challenge yourselves and, and also to to sort of internalize not only the, the, the sort of difficult questions of the, of the day, but try to remove ourselves from the drama of like Twitter and social media and also uh, being part of, of 
various political cliques, which we have been before, but are no longer. So this is a, a space to try and construct a dialogue that's slightly more um, constructive, if you will. So we'll, we'll see. Sounds great. Yeah. Uh, if nothing else, we'll know we have better reasons for why to send each other to the respective labor camps when the yes. day comes. Excellent. Essentially, we could. I, I'm a bit curious, or perhaps our listeners would be interested in, in understanding, like some of your own background before we delve into the the argument that you present. So the first question is like, why did you leave Sweden, the the fairest of countries? Yes. So I was born in Uppsala, where you studied, and uh, lived in Stockholm as well for a couple of years. But uh, yeah, I left Sweden when I was 14. Uh, the reason we left Sweden, the immediate reason anyway, um, my mother and uh, my brother, the three of us, uh, was uh, basically because we're Jewish. And my mother, and at that time, I'm no longer a practicing Jew, but I was at that time. I was raised religious. And at that time, there was... Well, probably still is the case, uh, uh, very little in the way of Jewish education and so on in Sweden. And so uh, our mother wanted us to have a Jewish uh, education and so be able to go to a Jewish school and so on. So that's the most immediate reason why we uh, why we left. And then I was actually by uh, it's a it's a long story. I'm not going to uh, get into all of that. But uh, very briefly, uh, I went to uh, the synagogue one day on a, on a Sabbath uh, Saturday morning and uh, came across a uh, older and wealthy a Jewish American tourist who was there, uh, who was there, and uh, was a, a twist of fate. But he uh, offered to uh, be my benefactor for Jewish education in the United States, and that was sort of um, even though we yeah. had never met before. I was thirteen at the time, and my mother uh, didn't want to send me off alone, so she said, "Well, that's this is the opportunity for all of us to go to uh, the United States." And so uh, a year in preparation went into it, and then off we went. So then I went and started high school here, and so on, and uh, and we stayed. So that was really the reason we moved. Um, I was never a particularly happy child in Sweden, although I will say that having come back to visit Sweden as an adult, I've actually had a much more positive impression than I did as a child. So, Do you recall any of your, uh, when you mentioned that, um, the Swedish education, do you recall any of the Swedish songs like, if you have an apple, do you want to share it with me? That is so funny because I gave an interview to the Lotus Eaters in the UK a couple of weeks ago and I mentioned that I, in that interview that I had I'd been singing songs in school that I later realized were socialist propaganda and it was so funny because I was thinking about this exact song when I said that. Yeah. So it's basically, yeah, so I've been working hard and while you've been sitting writing terrible poetry and now if I don't give you half of my apple then I'm stingy, that's pure socialism. <laughs> Oh yeah, so uh, I, it's very funny that you should mention that because that's the exact song I had in mind. So yeah, so that's um, there were there were others as well, but that was one of the more egregious ones. But but my understanding is at least I mean you 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 two will correct me if I'm wrong, but having I was in Sweden uh, last year for a visit for the first time in almost a decade, and every time I've been to I've only been to Sweden uh, maybe three times or so since we emigrated. Uh, but the last time I was there, I did get the impression, admittedly a very partial and brief and incomplete impression, but nonetheless that. The Swedes were maybe a little more cosmopolitan than uh, how I remembered them from my childhood in the late 80s and early 90s. And sort of a little, you know, o more open, uh, which is not always uh, um, an unmitigated uh, good. But uh, for me as a visitor, because I do feel like a visitor and like a foreigner in Sweden, 
Um, for me, it was a very pleasant uh, surprise, really, that everyone was very, uh, very friendly and and very uh, seemed very open to different ways of thinking of things and of doing things and so on, which is not at all how I remembered Sweden from my childhood. We do have uh, a greater sense of cosmopolitanism if it wasn't only for the pesky populists who keep pestering the debate. This is a very interesting topic, and I think uh, hopefully after slide presentation we can delve further into it. Yeah, I was wondering also maybe that it's also because of um, the almost unbridled immigration to Sweden that's been taking place. So, which is why maybe it, uh, the increase in cosmopolitanism also has a. Uh, a different side to it, but I'm not sure. I, I asked Swedish people uh, when I was there if they also had a similar impression as that uh, that society had changed to some degree in in Sweden. I think most of them seem to think that it had. Mm. Yes, and that's also sort of a chicken and an egg question in itself. So, how did you wander into this uh, fantastic topic of ochophobia, which is, uh, I guess, if you're a career philosopher, which in a, that sounded sort of mercenary. I was, uh, I'm not, <laughs> I beg your pardon if, if it did, but. Kelly's accusing you of being a sophist, essentially. Oh. No, no. <laughs> uh, I, I think the sophists have gotten a bad rap. But I, I'm very interested because you had an American uh, education and then you have a stint in Europe, which seems to me, or uh, is very much based on reading the, the ancients and studying the classic, basically the European tradition, which you yourself so eloquently say in the book and you've said in many interviews that this sort of humanistic education is a thing that's really not done by serious people anymore in Europe or in the US. So how did you wander into that sort of education and sort of put you on the path you're on now? Well, so the um, in terms of the uh, broad-based humanism, that uh, is just a part of how I was raised. Um, I grew up in a home uh, where my mother had us surrounded by books everywhere. I always grew up in that environment. That was just always a part of who I was. Uh, she took me to the opera when I was a little boy and taught me to read at a very early age. And uh, I've always had that broad-based humanism just as a part of me. Living any other way has never really been has never been an alternative. That's just always been who, who I am. Uh, in terms of the um, subject of ochophobia itself, more which I think you are. Uh, asked early, earlier in the question, that was also not really anything deliberate on my part. That was just a consequence of having been exposed to it constantly on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, I went to, um, I mean, I went to Germany for most of my university work um, because, uh, partly because I had become interested in that time, by that time uh, in German philosophy, and I wanted my German to be better, but while at the same time also pursuing uh, ancient Greek and Latin and uh, um, and there was a time uh, in the late 19th century or so when all American philologists went to Germany to study because it was recognized that the best institutions and the best professors for that subject was there. Mm. So it was maybe a little bit of that as well as sort of nostalgia in that sense. Uh, cultural nostalgia, if you will, not a personal nostalgia. But the orcophobia just came to me um, also spontaneously. I had um, been exposed to it so much, and as I'm sure all of us have, um, whether, we, whether we recognize it as a separate phenomenon or not that uh, suddenly just one day um, I was hit by the book, essentially. Um, the book um, fell from the sky, so to speak, in a, in a moment, in a flash. And uh, the, uh, the, the basically the whole argument and, and the orcophobic trajectory that I described in the book, it, it all crystallized itself in my mind in a few seconds. And then I just had to go home and, and write it out, which took a while. But, uh, but that's basically how that happened. So none of this was, was really um, sought out, as it were. Uh, these are things that just sort of happened and that... Uh, as far as I see, it couldn't really have happened in any other way based on, on my experience and on, on who I am and so on. I realize how silly the question sounds, but like, how does it feel to write out an argument like this 
in a spur of the moment, even though, I mean, it's taken years so we can come back to that into getting it into the final or, uh, final print. But, but the basis essentially, given the long stretch of time, to me contrasts in a way to the very sudden pathic realization in a way. Could, could you elaborate well, on that for us? Yeah, well, the writing process itself is also pathic, to use your word, uh, which I think is a good word. Um, and this is why I, when I, when I refer to myself as a philosopher or an academic, that's more really for professional uh, or networking reasons, if you will. Um, more, more generally, I really think of myself as a writer, um, first of all. Which means, and I also do write things that are not strictly philosophical. And and the creative process is is, and this is why I said elsewhere that this book is not based on academic research. It's based on a lifetime of living and reading books and and on inspiration and so on. And so the process, the the first that initial moment of of suddenly having the idea crystallize itself, um, is pathic. But so is the uh, so is the writing process. And I think, well, I flatter myself anyway in saying uh, it's for readers to judge if they agree with me. But uh, when I say that the book is written in a way that to some extent anyway reflects the fact that I view myself more as a writer than as an academic, uh, which also did um, uh, make it more difficult to, uh, to get it published. And certain elements maybe of that were toned down in the editing process. Um, necessarily, I know the book wouldn't have been published by, by an academic press if, if I hadn't toned down certain aspects. Um, but um, essentially, the uh, the way I wrote the book is the way I would write anything. I've written. Uh, I was a, a volunteer teacher in Southern Africa for a while. I've written a memoir on that, which hasn't been published yet. Hopefully, it will. Uh, but my point is, the way I wrote both those books were exactly the same. Uh, it's not that I write something creative and now I write something academic or philosophical. To me, it's all the same. And so uh, I think of it as a piece of literature more than more than more than as a piece of philosophy. And so the um, passionate, the pathic aspects, uh, if you will, accompanied me throughout. But that's maybe also one reason why I am, uh, if you, if you, um, as you say, I, I come across as uh, as calm. I'm not sure what word you used uh, or something. Uh, but but in any case, it's because I uh, the passion or the pathos, if you will, is something I expend in the book itself, in the writing process. And so yeah, that's probably what I would say on that. I don't consider it primarily a piece of scholarship, although it's also that. I, I consider it a piece of literature, and this is simply how I write. Good. So a proper manifesto then? Yes, in a certain sense, yes. Even though, I mean, it's, it's um, nowadays, of course, uh, a lot of scholarship uh, has a uh, ideological angle for sure, and, um, but, and I actually try to stay away from that a little bit, and I've actually been criticized by some conservatives who feel that, well, the book is quite conservative, but they've criticized me for not taking a clear stance on certain issues for a conservative or right-wing position. And I always tell them, well, I don't see that as, as my job as a writer necessarily. I just kind of sort of write what comes to me. I mean, to use Socratic language, it might sound a little pretentious, but to use Socratic language, I basically just write what the diamond gives to me. And if this is what the diamond gives to me, and so I put it out on paper, whether the end result of that is exactly in accordance with a particular political ideology is secondary. And in fact, as I was shopping the book around, there were certain conservative presses that told me, well, we like this, but it's not conservative enough. So it's a no. And so, um, and so even though certainly one can, uh, if you will, uh, for the, well, one can form a, um, a manifest of sorts out of this book, nonetheless, it's not, the, it, that was never the primary purpose. So, so I find that very interesting because the media space or, or, or the conversational space as it is right now, it is, to use your language, very fragmented. And this this is the times we live in. And and hence, uh, in, in the world of Twitter and social media, where, where arguments are made in a flash and they're sort of played out in minutes, 
by cohorts of very partisan people who tried to give a, a, a jab at you and then retreat back into the multitude, so to speak. This is sort of a, a very anachronistic uh, way to, to uh, present your argument, in a good way, I'd say. I, I won't say that as, as any criticism at all. And this is, I think, uh, why the book is so fascinating, because it could very well have been in that uh, conservative slant and which I, when I got uh, Johan's message that we, we were redoing this book uh, and I had yet to read it, I was sort of uh, suspecting we would see some uh, rather conservative slant on it. And then I think in the first third, uh, you have this uh, brilliant description of, of what we call, uh, we return to it, I'm sure, uh, reactionary orchophobia, which is, uh, orchophobia has sort of become, well, it is, this sort of Scrutonian term that's usually picked up by people on the on the on the right wing or conservative wing on the spectrum uh, uh, to to in the best case sort of describe a general tendency uh, in, in society, but in in the worst case may be used for like a slander and, and hence like everything in, in the world of today has become politicized. So and and your criti- and your critics have very have well walked down that path rather rather deterministically, I'd say, uh, and you can sort of see the arguments bec- before they materialize, you know, because Guy is obviously a conservative. Why would he even speak of this topic if he was not? And why wouldn't he instead uh, devote his uh, talents to to the, the cause of justice uh, or, or any other such righteous slogan? So this is, I think, at the core of it, to, to really describe what this book is, it's very much, uh, in my, my view, uh, a philosophical argument for a sort of balance or to readdress the sort of balance that's sorely lacking in our conversation uh, right now. I would, I would love to hear you elaborate on that because I think it's, it's not easy to digest in one or two sentences what you're really doing with this book because it's dense. You're right. Yes, it is indeed. Uh, or uh, so I've been told. But yes, that seems to be the communist opinion. The, uh, but it's interesting what you say about people having, you know, people coming from their ideological boxes and criticizing it from that point of view, which is why I've got, received critique from both the right and the left. From the right, as I previously mentioned, they say it's not conservative enough. But then also from the left, you hear they because they start reading the book or maybe because of uh, interviews or appearances that I've made, they have me pegged as a conservative in the first place. And also because of Roger Scruton, of course, having coined the term. And so they don't. And so because they have that expectation, they are already closed uh, in their minds, it seems to be, to certain passages where I write things that are definitely not uh, something that would please conservatives. And so they don't even notice those passages. There was a funny, um, uh, if I may say so, a very philosophically ignorant review from uh, Sweden uh, by Eligander, uh, who uh, criticized me for not having addressed the issue of reactionary orcophobia. He didn't use that term because obviously he missed that I had actually, uh, in fact, labeled and discussed that phenomenon in the book, pointing out to me or lecturing me that there are American farmers who uh, dislike what they perceive the United States to have become, even though they're on the right. And I had to point out, I don't think he saw my answer, but I had to point out that I certainly uh, discussed this phenomenon in the book. And so this is, I think, this is a result of the fact that people, once people have pegged you as being of a particular political tribe, then um, they they become half blind. Basically, uh, there is a Swedish expression that I actually don't really like, but to be one eyed, right? To to see with only one eye. So uh, I feel it's an overused expression, but it might fit in this case. 
uh, that one really sees half of something because of uh, because of a particular uh, ideological uh, viewpoint. The Swedish listeners, of course, will know what I mean. And and so that's been a problem with both left and right. And and that's also difficult for a book like this to become heard because, of course, nowadays books are really written. All the books that are written on philosophical or, or political, I guess I should say, political philosophical subjects are expected to be of one camp or the other. And a book like this, which is I think most people probably agree that it's closer to a conservative uh, direction, uh, certainly than a progressive one. But the fact that it refuses to take a particular strong conservative line in, in that it tries to be in a certain sense a little more descriptive than prescriptive, mm. that makes it difficult for some people to really appreciate some of the um, uh, layered nuances, if I may say so, um, of the book. And uh, and which is why critique uh, comes from uh, from both directions, even if perhaps a bit more vociferously from the left. But uh, yeah, conservatives read along and then they are shocked to find out later on that I'm an atheist. And so that doesn't sit well, for example, with some people. And um, so, yeah, there's there's something to offend everyone, which, of course, is uh, which uh, is something in which I take great pleasure. I mean, not really. That's no, that, that's, say- that's definitely what we aim for here. Uh, right. Offend everyone. <laughs> but I mean, let's let's uh, cut the chase and go to the core here. What do you mean by Oikos alternatively? Why do we need to talk about Oikos? And then from then there on. How are we to understand oikophobia? Oikos, oikos itself is a very loaded word because, yeah, it's it's a good question. What does one mean by home? Um, home can, of course, be a physical place, but also a, a spiritual and a cultural uh, environment. Uh, and that's really more, uh, I think, what oikos is. Oikos originally is the um, was really just the um, uh, in in sort of Homeric times is sort of just the uh, the the castle of the king and his and the surrounding farms and that's the only unit of home before uh, before the polis developed before there were actually polit- political societies before there were cities uh, that's the that's the basic home so basically the family units and servants and so on and or slaves probably more properly in that context but oikos is is one's own community. Uh, one's own society, and in the modern era, certainly one's own nation, uh, which is uh, less true to some extent. There, there is um, patriotism, certainly a uh, uh, primitive, primitive forms of nationalism, also in in the ancient worlds. But uh, but nationalism in the modern sense, uh, oikos is one's nation as well. And uh, phobia is not always the fear. I use it uh, usually more in the sense of hatred or dislike of one's own home. It's certainly possible. To, for one to fear one's home as well. For example, uh, you could have in, in the election of 2016, for example, there were uh, certain Americans who literally feared what uh, what was happening uh, with the United States. They literally feared followers of Donald Trump and so on. So you could say that fear can sometimes be a component, but it's usually just a dislike and and a looking down upon uh, on the uh, on the inherited traditions and on the cultural memories of one's home. At the same time, of course, which is very important because that serves as an engine for ecophobia. At the same time by dint of lowering or looking down upon one's own home, one, of course, also raises oneself correspondingly. Uh, and that's a, and that's a big part of ochophobia. The fact, the statement that one is better than that by which one is surrounded. That's uh, mostly what ochophobia is. And, and as you mentioned before, it's something that repeats itself uh, since, uh, since antiquity. Because it would be strange... I had an interview um, about a week ago with the uh, with the Dutch party there in uh, the Forum for Democracy and Thierry Baudet, who's also written a little bit on the subject. He kept insisting that this is a purely modern phenomenon. And I tried to explain that it would be strange if it were only a modern phenomenon because it's really based on human nature. It's not based purely just on nationalism or something like that. It's based on the need that we all have in different degrees 
of elevating ourselves vis-a-vis -vis our peers in some way. That need is stronger in some people than in others, but we all have that need to sort of delimit ourselves in some way and sort of try to emphasize or point out that which is special in ourselves. Mm. And orcophobia is a perversion, if you will, of that need. But that need has always existed, of course, in, in antiquity as in modern times. That need to raise oneself above the uh, above one's own uh, immediate surroundings, and that feeds into orcophobia. So what I find so fascinating, well, what I find so fas fascinating about you, you delining this term uh, and, re and really uh, tracing it back to the, its roots in archaic Greek society is the fact that the, the terms, especially uh, when you have a term that, <laughs> that has the suffix phobia nowadays, sort of immediately becomes, in the, in the minds of many people, political. Because we have Islamophobia, we have uh, transphobia, you know, all the phobias that have sort of uh, permeated Western debate now for 10, 15 years, and uh, academia for, for much more than that. But I think, you know, uh, oikophobia for, I think, many people, or, or I, I won't say for me, but, 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 but for part of the discourse, and, and I consider myself slightly more to the right wing than the left wing, or, or that's the milieu I come from anyway, so... Hence, I'm more, uh, you know, I, I, I can pick up the tendencies in that sort of milieu more than, than maybe others can. But, but oikophobia for me was the sort of also not a brutish term, but we, was slightly propagandistic. And the fact that, that you have, well, right wing discourse is always described by, uh, by its enemies of the, on the left that it's always searching for, especially on the hard right, uh, traitors, uh, especially to the nation. Hence, ochrophobia becomes this sort of, um, it, almost like a propaganda term to, to, to cudgel your enemies with uh, and say, well, of course, you're left wing oikophobe, this and that. And this is the sort of Twitter lingo that sort of floats around. But, but the, but the lovely thing you've done is you, you've really, sort of uh, made a journey through the intellectual history of oikophobia and shown that this is much more a uh, sociological and a uh, psychological uh, phenomenon that it is only like a propaganda term reserved for uh, the hard right wing which is which is fascinating for me and so so I would I would only 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 share my gratitude with that and also invite you to speak on on the fact that these words are so loaded nowadays and and hence you really try to dig down on the on on these issues, but all the reviews that come up and 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 some of the your critics seem to read selectively indeed what they like and sort of hunt for 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 these well to to really find out but Benedict really is this ultra right wing guy that you know uh, wants to find traitors and I guess this is the fascinating discourse we're having right because here you are doing some genuine academic work and twitter uh is you know hurls to the swine indeed <laughs> of, of 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 you know the the treasure trove of, of, of a twitter with its five second memes uh and 200 page books isn't the forte of many in so-called intellectual people nowadays i mean it's 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 a conundrum in itself isn't it because like the, the people who need this the most i i guess intellectual people it's, it sort of passes through them because the sieve is sort of calibrated not to to pick up on anything that's that's uh, not so uh, you know voraciously uh, ideological, and you and you are not, uh, I'd say. Yeah, it was interesting the um, the aspect that you emphasized there that phobia is so often used um, as a um, as a sort of pejorative term to uh, to uh, label people as uh, prejudiced in some way. 
This is actually one reason why I was reluctant in the book to actually label I that I preferred to take a more historical approach. It was part of it, and I didn't want to uh, label too many contemporary figures as elkophobes because, as I actually wrote my editor at the time, I didn't want this to seem like some sort of witch hunt. Mm. Just like, as you said, uh, many people on the left will will label anyone as phobic uh, regarding so homophobic, transphobic, xenophobic, whatever it is. Uh, and then in the end, um, for uh, more academic scholarly reasons, uh, I basically, I had to still label a few uh, contemporary figures because otherwise I say, you know, you have to give examples for everything mm. um, that, uh, that you write in an academic book. And I said, well, people who read it with an open mind, they'll already know what I'm talking about. But that wasn't quite good enough, so I did. I did have to include a few, um, a few modern names, but uh, I kept it sort of to a minimum, precisely because for the reason you say, I did not want it to be the sort of political screed that attacks particular individuals. But I really wanted it to take the sort of broader view and and see it more uh, through a socio-historical lens, so that we can really understand what this is. I thought the, uh, the term, uh, and this is the reason that I used uh, that I adopted Putin's term. I thought it's useful simply because. Since we do have a word for xenophobia, uh, I think we should have a word for oikophobia. And the fact that we only have a word for xenophobia is, of course, in itself oikophobic. Because mm. you can apparently buy that the implicit suggestion is, of course, is, is that you can only be phobic if you despise foreigners. You cannot be phobic if you despise your own people. But of course, if one is phobic, then the other should be labeled phobic as well. So I did like that sort of ter terminological symmetry that uh, oikophobia as a word offered. But, of course, that does not mean uh, that that it therefore just becomes appropriate to use orcophobia as a political cudgel, mm. just like transphobia and homophobia and xenophobia and so on are used as political cudgels. Um, uh, and so there is um, there is always that um, there is always that uh, danger, I suppose, in introducing a term like that is that people will start using it as a cudgel. The advantage is that not so many people have read the book, so I don't. So I, so I think for that reason alone, it's not <laughs> going to become a cudgel, at least not anytime soon. Maybe I'll give it some time. We'll see. But anyway, yeah, that's uh, about the term itself, and then um, the idea that that one should sort of um, rise above such things and try to be somewhat apolitical. I mean, I'm I'm not apolitical. Obviously, I have my political views like everyone else. But there, there are two issues here uh, that I think you sort of addressed uh, in your remark, which, number one, the fact that everything is political, and certainly in social media, everything has to be reduced to sort of political soundbites. And number two, the fact that, uh, which is also something I mentioned briefly in the book, th and which uh, was mentioned earlier also now in this conversation, the sort of lack of a larger humanist education, those two things together sort of conspire to make it very difficult for a lot of people to appreciate the nuances of a book like this, yeah. uh, because one, first of all, has one's own particular ideological viewpoint, of course, which then makes one incapable of of appreciating the finer nuances uh, that are in there. Uh, I mentioned Elie Gunder previously, I probably should be the last time I mentioned him, but uh, he sort of made it sound in his review as if I were basically, as if, as if the book was basically boiling down to defending the presidency of Donald Trump, which is ridiculous. Mm. Um, but um, his, it, I mentioned Donald Trump once in there, I think. Uh, because he is a, an important figure in the history of this trajectory um, as a sort of reaction, but it's obviously not what the book is about. And so that's that's one problem, this sort of reading that is a purely political kind of reading. And then number two, the fact that I touch upon so many different issues and not to show off uh, my education or anything like that, which some people have also uh, suggested, but simply because all of it factors into orcophobia. When you talk about civilizational trajectories on a large scale to show how orcophobia develops, 
things like mentioning mentioning things as disparate things as Facebook and Hellenistic sculpture, right? They all factor into it. Uh, and so it becomes very important to deal, and and this was also part of the book. I didn't just want to deal with some particular political aspect. I really wanted this to be, and this is how the idea came to me in the first place. I wanted the book to be the first ever book length, systematic and comprehensive treatment of this subject, which I think it is, if I may say so. And so that required me to deal with lots of different things all at the same time. And people who read the book, either they are they are not educated in all those subjects, which is understandable enough, or they are not interested in all of those subjects and, and in how they all hang together. And so that as well, I, I would say, leads, uh, kind of encourages the political, the political reading because one starts to focus only on that which is politically convenient or which is um, politically congenial to one's own point of view. And sort of leaves out everything else, and and that's something that, in order to really understand the full scope of the argument, one cannot do. One has to really look at at all of the different aspects. And if one does that, one realizes that even though I do have my own political opinions, it's actually not really, you know, it's not about defending Donald Trump, or it's not uh, about uh, saying that the conservatives are right and everything, which obviously I don't think. So yeah, there was a time when you know a hundred years ago when educated upper class people, at least because in those days uh, it was really the upper class that was uh, that uh, that could um, that could take partake in higher education, which I'm not saying was was a good thing in and of itself. That certainly would have excluded people like me. But um, there was a time when those who were educated knew about philosophy. They spoke several languages fluently. Uh, an, a, an educated um, an educated uh, Englishman. He spoke French fluently a hundred years ago, for example. Probably had a smattering of German. He had learned Latin and ancient Greek. He uh, usually played an instrument of some kind. There was a level of education that it was common then, which is simply not common anymore. And I think that relative decline of education, which is in and of itself uh, a sign of civilizational decline, I would say, uh, of the sort that I discuss in the book, that also makes it harder for a lot of people to sort of take in all of the facets of the book. And and therefore, once again, it makes it easier for, for them to uh, to read politically rather than philosophically. Mm. So what I want to come back to them is what you started out with saying when, uh, in response to Cal's question, that is... At the core, there's a question of human nature. That is, what makes people tick, and this this uh, aspiration to uh, distinguish oneself for a variety of reasons. Perhaps you want to go into that. But the way I understand it is essentially that when a society is weak, then a, the way to distinguish oneself is by defending that society towards outward or external en- enemies. But once all those enemies have been defeated, that drive can only be satisfied by picking out errors within one's society. So it's it's the same drive, but the application is different. And over time then, coming up to the present moment, you arrive at a parasitic behavior among the people who should in fact be the best defenders of their own society. So the way I understand this, and correct me if I'm wrong, Benedict, but like it's, it's an interpretation of human nature that takes into account all of at least like as long as we build society but that also gives a diagnosis of where we are now that focuses on on the behaviors of elites and and the requirement of their conduct and and by which standards one one can say that elites have failed so i read your argument in a way as um an elite theory as an elite theory you mean a theory about the elite uh, meaning both when when the elite is uh, very uh, patriotic and when the elite is very xenophobic is is how you mean Yes, exactly, and and uh, and I think the reason for me for framing it in a way is is because it's easy in in I mean perhaps that's also always been the case, but 
especially if you're politically interested, it's almost like there's a correlation that the more politically you're interested in, the less likely you are to become involved in a political party or consume media, unless it's like very niche to what, what really satisfies you. So like your consumption of philosophy and politics becomes more in a way pornographic because it's a cope. And, and that's not a healthy society, is what I'm saying. Uh, right. But, but you, in a way, you seem to turn it around to say, like, well, elites don't be- have to behave this way. They just happen to behave in this way at the moment. But right. it's, it's not in and of themselves, this is how elites should be behaving. Right, that's true. That's a very, very true point. And this is also why, um, in a certain sense, uh, as I, as I say in the book, there isn't really a, um, there isn't really a sharp shift um, or a break, if you will, between the society's rise and its decline, because it's really all part of the same process. So you can say, since, as you mentioned, the the vanity, if you will, that leads people, or the self-aggrandizement that leads people to want to distinguish themselves, whether that whether the best outlet for that distinction is through nationalism or patriotism or through orcophobia, yes. uh, that remains the same as a sort of a basis for behavior. And so in that sense, and so that's one of the reasons why the process that the process that contributes to society's rise and then subsequently to its fall is really the same process for a number for a variety of reasons as i discuss in the book but yes that's certainly part of it um and because as you say the elite um the elite can behave in a, in a different way as well uh, when we see the uh, earlier phases of a society it is of course also the elite that is behind expansion and uh, national aggrandizement and so on uh, the one thing uh, the one uh, maybe slight qualification one would make to uh, to the point that it is mostly about the elite, which I think largely is true, is that in modern societies, of course, society, uh, orcophobia starts to bleed down to the lower classes as well. And I discuss the reasons for that in the book, which is basically the process of democratization and and the diffusion of knowledge, which uh, leads to a uh, sort of a false sense of expertise uh, among the lower classes as well. Uh, yeah, and, every, uh, everyone's a critic, essentially. Exactly. Everyone is a critic and everyone is an expert. Uh, and uh, and that leads to orcophobia. In earlier phases of a society, and certainly in antiquity, which did not share our sense of egalitarianism to the same extent, and did not have a concept of human rights and so on, it remains uh, mostly an elite phenomenon, the uh, orcophobia. Uh, whereas once democratization becomes diffuse enough, we start to see it in the lower classes as well. One starts to see orcophobia in the lower classes uh, well, already, I would say, in France in the 1700s, Enlightenment period among the middle classes, and then by the time we get to the uh, late 19th, early 20th century in Britain, it starts to seep down into the working classes as well. I am an anti-Christ, I am an anarchist, don't know what I want, but I know how to get it, I want to destroy, possibly, because I... But uh, but that's that's a qualification, but it doesn't change the fact that it is indeed mostly about the elite. Yes, and I think it's a, it's important for me in a way to 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 um, approach this as an elite theory because in a way it gives also a sense of what can be demanded of elites, and also in a way of understanding why it is relevant to oppose or formulate other uh, alternatives to current uh, elite behavior. I mean, you mentioned the election of Donald Trump. That is essentially a uh, um, a negation of the previous elites uh, around around um, people like like Hillary Clinton, who 
will go to church, but everyone knows she's an atheist. Yeah, exactly. So it, beco- it comes off as yet cynical. But also in the sense that she, she, she not, not only does she not adhere to traditions or traditional constituencies, but she also openly despises them. So it's, it's kind of like a backlash, not because you necessarily think that the alternative, which is Trump and, and the family relatives he had around him would be a better alternative, but in a way that like it is by by refuting the present elite, you at least show that another another elite is possible. And the more vulgar that elite is, perhaps the better, just to unsettle and create more oxygen in the in the um, like political ocean you're swimming in or in the ecosystem. I'm running out of metaphors, I'm realizing here. But <laughs> you see my point, like Yes, absolutely. And that, that's one thing I appreciate about the United States is that I feel that here we, the quote unquote elite that is um, uh, of a different mind is is larger here than in Western Europe, as I perceive it anyway. Uh, although, I mean, there, there are certainly uh, backlashes in, in a number of West European countries as well, of course, as you know. But uh, we do have a uh, we do have a stronger, I, I think in America, we do have a stronger um, sense of an, of, of an alternative elite, to put it that way. Now, obviously, the the popul the right wing populism that is represented by by Donald Trump and by his followers is very anti elitist in a certain sense. But there is still within that group there is still an elite, uh, so to speak, within uh, within that group. Um, and uh, uh, but I think an elite that is maybe a, that is um, less um, that despises its own lower group, so to speak, less than the elite uh, of the left does. I think the elite of the left. Has become um, more "quote unquote" elitist in the sense that they really despise—not uh, all of them, of course—but uh, but a number of them really despise uh, their own people on the left who are uh, socially beneath them. And I think that's probably less true uh, of the elite on the right. But uh, but as you say, the elite on the right does show that an elite does not, not have to behave in a certain way. Um, and uh, since we see that elites in history have behaved in all different kinds of ways, uh, and which is another reason why it is important to. Uh, to take this broader bird's eye view, because that makes it easier to take ourselves and our own convictions now a little less seriously and to kind of realize that a different behavior is possible. I, one of you said, I think it was you, Yuan, you said um, to put ourselves on the chopping block a little bit. I think you used that expression. Yeah. And this is, this is a part of the, this is part of the importance of the bird's eye view. The further away you, you go uh, um, from the, um, from one's, from one's own immediate surrounding, from one's own um, immediate view of, um, um, of our current, of our present moment in history, the easier it is to see um, that what we're doing now does not have to be um, the case, because uh, and one learns to take one learns to take one's own convictions a little less seriously. That, of course, in and of itself can be an engine for cophobia, because of course, educated people like to think that uh, when they react against patriotism and nationalism and so on, they like to think that they, because by dint of their education, they have a broader view, and so they start to question. They start to question patriotism. They start to question nationalism and inherited tradition from that perspective. But by the very same token, if one takes a, a yet broader view again, one can start to question that particular behavior and realize that this orcophobic behavior is in and of itself a, a child of its time and that uh, and that a different elite behavior is indeed possible, as you say. Which, which is very interesting because I, I think as political animals and as political thinkers, we, we're, we're sadly tied to, to the present day and, uh, and, and especially in the sort of hyper, what can you say, hyper-presentist, to, 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 to coin a phrase, political climate where we have, you know, uh, 
in the in US, you like to talk about election cycles, but I, I, I'm I'm starting to wonder, or even news cycles. But like right now, I think we're running on Twitter cycles, which is which is uh, seems to be you know accelerating, if not daily, then 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 every week. But I, I think it's really interesting because you have this uh, cyclical, in a sense, conception of history that you present in a way in your work. And and for many, I think it's sort of uh, to to uh, come back to your uh, point about intellectuals a hundred years ago, were a bit more exposed to that sort of a thinking because now I think mo- most people in the West have this uh, progressive or Whig conception of history that uh, to. To quote, I think our intro, which uh, feat, uh, features President Obama saying, "The arc of justice, uh, the arc of history bends towards justice." That tends to be the 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 conception people have of history with with big H uh, in a sort of a Hegelian way. But a hundred years ago, you had uh, some people. I think most notably a, p- a person like Oswald Spengler, who who. Produced his his famous uh, decline of the West work, uh, in which he also had this sort of cyclical view of destruction of of of, of civilization that's very deterministic. But I think the thing that sort of separates which you, uh, your work from his, uh, what people should really take care to read, is that here we have a way out. And whereas Spengler sort of, for me at least, sort of is a driver of cynicism and really uh, has been used by intellectuals in the last hundred, hundreds of years to say, you know, uh, the doom of, of all great civilizations are inevitable. Here we can take a broader view and say, you know, this has happened not only 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 years ago, 2000 years ago. I think it's it's a key to, to acting and thinking in a sense, because we tend to, and especially, and here I'm, I'm going to be slightly American and say that it's driven by the media uh, of your particular country and in the election cycles where you you had, as long as I followed American politics, it's been you know uh, the one election that's going to decide all the elections. You know, after this, it's not going to be an election anymore. You know, if Bush wins, we'll go to Canada. If Kerry wins, I'll go to Canada. If Trump wins, you know, et cetera, et cetera. This this sort of rhetoric is always uh, and probably always has been, you know, sort of in the forethought of people in a political sense. But now I think intellectuals have been sort of captured by this as well. Since we're living in this very presentist media landscape, where people have to have takes on everything, realizing, you know, as a as a slightly conservative person, that this has happened before. Not only you know twenty years ago, not only with a Postmodernists during the 20th century, but it's happened way back until the Greeks, and it's sort of a, a, a map, and and we don't have you know uh, a destination or or, or 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 you know an utopia here, but we have a way of thinking of history that you know that allows us not to commit to the mistake of not thinking, of just being rhetorical people and not being serious with reading or intellectual thought. So I I found that I found that particular thing very uh, invigorating, invigorating uh, by reading your work. Yeah, and that's my main problem with Spengler, really, the fact that yeah, I mentioned Sp- Spengler only briefly in the book, in an endnote, really, but my main problem with Spengler is that he really tries to, first of all, he tries to account for everything, mm-hmm. uh, which is impossible. Uh, I think one should be a little more intellectually modest. And number two, uh, as you say, he takes 
I mean, I'm quite deterministic myself. The, the reason I wrote the epilogue uh, at the end of the book is to explain that even though I do take a fairly deterministic view of history, this does not weaken the force of our actions, and that's why I wrote the epilogue to explain that. Um, but Spengler, precisely by explain by trying to explain everything, he has to force everything into a particular mold. And if everything is stuck in this particular mold, then it stands to reason that nothing can change. Nothing can nothing can can push out on the boundaries of this mold. And so, yes, everything happens exactly the way it has to happen, and that's it. And which is why, indeed, yeah, Spengler is uh, popular among among the cultural pessimists. I, I know a lot of people would call me a cultural pessimist uh, also, but uh, but I, at least I don't think I'm as pessimistic as Spengler, uh, because he really um, puts history in a straitjacket. In that sense, he's kind of Marxist, actually, in a certain sense, um, since, since Marx also has this conviction that everything has to go in a particular way. Uh, all the times that Marx uh, uses the word historical law as opposed to tendency or something like that. That's sort of similar to Spengler's language in a certain sense. And and, and so, yeah, uh, the w- when we talk about historical tendencies rather than laws, and when we talk about, and this is also, I think, something you alluded to in uh, in your remark, namely that by not taking, by not first mm. of all trying to account for everything, but only to account for a particular phenomenon, although that phenomenon does involve certain side, a lot of side issues, it is still about one particular phenomenon. Uh, one realizes that there is so much, the more, the more um, intellectually humble one is in the sense that one realizes that there is a lot one doesn't understand and that there is a lot one cannot account for, that leaves at least the possibility open that maybe there is something here that can be done because I don't know the answer to everything. So in a certain sense, it might seem counterintuitive, but refusing to claim absolute knowledge is, is in a certain sense liberating, actually, in that sense. And the, um, the issue is that if uh, one takes this sort of broader view of history, one sees this has happened over and over again, to, to go to one of your other points, uh, one can become a little more sanguine about what is going on right now. As you said, every election in the United States is the last election we'll, we'll ever have. It's the election to settle all elections mm. and so on. This Obviously, this kind of language one hears from both uh, Democrats and Republicans. I, Of course, I have my political preferences, as I mentioned before, like everyone else. When I go, I go to vote every time and I vote for a particular candidate. But I know uh, that if my candidate loses, and this is good for me because my candidate usually loses, then then I know that this is not, in fact, the end of the world. And one... Uh, one becomes a little more sanguine about the political process and one becomes there there is one passage in the book which just uh, remembered now mm. where i refer to everything that's going on as faintly comical mm. i think it has like a, almost a comedic aspect to it because when one sees that this is a sort of a, a theatrical piece that repeats itself uh then one simply tries to do, do the best with what one has and 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 one and one uh without without thinking that it's the end of the world when things doesn't when things don't go one's way now of course the one the one possible potential danger of that is to slip into a sort of determinism through another door through the through the back door by saying that well if if one is sanguine about this because these things have happened before and it's and it's really not such a big deal then of course one could also through that way become deterministic and feel that well nothing what i do uh, nothing that i do is going to matter anyway because this is sort of a process that keeps repeating itself um yes. which, yeah so that so that so there's there are different ways of of slipping into that determinism which is not very healthy for human action but i think as long one should try to work as hard as one can to improve one's mm. uh, one's situation but the sanguinity comes in in the fact that at the end of the day when all is said and done whether things worked out exactly as one wanted to or not 
one can live with 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 whatever happened because one realizes that ultimately history is very vast and and uh, goes far beyond uh, all of us and um and so i think that that makes it easier it's it's also a bit of a stoic view i i get into this stoicism a little bit in the epilogue as well but the, the sort of idea that yes one does work hard one does try uh, to fight for for what's right uh, as best one can but one also accepts that ultimately things will happen as they happen one has one can exercise influence but there are limits to uh, limits to what one can do and sort of seeing seeing everything a little bit through uh, through the lens of uh, human folly or, or human uh, uh, human comedy that i think that helps uh, in a certain sense this relates in a way to a question i had of to what degree you think the political depression if you can call it that is more of a modern phenomena that it's it's primarily in a day and age where you expect tomorrow to be better than yesterday that you can have these kind of uh, this is the election to end all elections. If we lose, it's cataclysmic. Uh, whether or not that would have been made any sense to people in an agrarian society, where frankly it's a pretty good um, uh, goal to pass on the farm to your your children to have them raised to literally rebind society, the etymological root root of course of religion, religare. To what degree the present day woe uh, in politics is also because we have come to perhaps expect more from political reforms than is is due in in leaders of society as a whole yeah uh, no, i think it's entirely modern phenomenon i mean you can trace this sort of uh, progressivism back to the 1600s basically more more or less and it depends on where also what country but uh yeah it certainly comes into its own uh, in the enlightenment period it exists in, in excuse me it exists to some measure before then as well but i would say that's probably the uh, uh the uh, the great rise of uh of this sort of progressivism in Enlightenment France and in sort of um, Sturm und Drang Germany uh, as well, um, so slightly later, but uh, but roughly the same time period. The uh, it's completely alien to the Greeks who had uh, really no sense of history, as you say, a very localized at most sense of history that you want to pass on your property to your children and so on, and you want to have children and grandchildren who will who will uh, who will bring on your genes and so on. But that's 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 pretty much it. And so that's um, that's certainly uh, a sense of utopia cannot really arise uh, under such circumstances. The Romans move a little bit more already in this direction because due to the fact that they had such a long empire, um, they develop a little more of a sense of history uh, than the uh, than the Greeks had. When the Greek, when the so-called Greek historians, uh, foremost Thucydides and and Herodotus, when they write their work, um, it's you could just as easily call it um, sort of cultural anthropology and and geography and so on because it's much about that or it's the history of a very particular event uh, it starts to change a little bit with polybius uh, but that's already uh, you know hellenistic era where they start to get a little more of a sense of history and and he starts to talk about civilizational cycles and so on uh, but the romans certainly have more of a sense of history since they are aware that they have this long history to look back on and and roman historians as opposed to greek historians they write about long periods of history but okay, even when so you, is this then sorry is this then really an issue for people living in empires so it becomes a little more of an issue for people living in empires however if you somebody reading somebody like Livy or Tacitus they do uh, or Suetonius they do talk about long they do talk about uh, historical developments but even there um it's there's not this sense that there's this end goal of history um that starts to come then with the Christians so uh, St. Augustine, uh, most importantly, uh, I think. I mean, St. Augustine is sort of the father of this sort of religious progressivism that history is going to 
uh, work itself up to an ultimate uh, to an ultimate goal, which is then, of course, the progressivism that is inherited uh, in the modern era as well. But so those are um, so certainly pre-Christian antiquity does not have the sort of progressivism, and mm. uh, which is why they are they are blissfully free of of political utopianism. Uh, they have. Uh, I have the feeling that you want to jump in here. Me? No, no, no. I, no I, 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 I just, I just realized it would be nice to write a book called like Woke Augustine or like Wokestine or something like that. <laughs> don't, don't, don't you dare! Don't you? Don't you? <laughs> I know Carla Love, Carla Love, Saint Augustine, but oh, I see. I oh, okay. yeah. I see. Well, I, I, I was gonna say I, I would read that, but yeah, but, uh, but yeah, he's uh, no, he's. I, and I mean, I mean, uh, there are certainly aspects of Augustine that I like as well. I don't. And this is on a side note. This is another thing. Uh, I've been attacked for because I say that there's some orcophobic or progressive or element or something like that in a particular author because I place a particular author in a particular juncture of the of the civilization trajectory. Yes. Thereby means that I hate that person. It's like somebody says, "Oh, well, he hates Euripides." He's like, "No, I adore Euripides. I think he's one of the greatest poets in world history." Uh, but I can still place him in a particular historical juncture. Um, he is but, still an oikophobe, is what you're saying. I, 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 love, I, love, I love the fact that I now know that Tacitus is an oikophobe. That, that is the most shocking thing to me. Yeah. I, I love that. Well, Tacitus, Tacitus gives us some of the best oikophobic uh, statements yeah. that we have in all, of, in all of Roman literature, for sure. Which is I, why I, I love I love how we try to be like politically correct about very dead people. Like some of my best friends are oikophobes. <laughs> <laughs> but this, this is actually this is actually a very good sign because it means that we live with these people. We treat yeah. we treat yes. these people yes. as if they are living among which they are. I mean, uh, true. Yeah. We're all we're all uh, we're all here bibliophiles. I'm sure uh, uh, yeah. intellectual people, uh, and so uh, which is why I, I like to speak of these people in the present tense because I live with them every day. Um, yes, and uh, and I'm sure the same is uh, the same is true for both of you. But uh, yeah, so no, so there are certainly things I like about uh, Augustine. Uh, Saint Augustine is is uh, certain passages, certainly in the Confessions, that are uh, very very charming. Uh, I would say, even though obviously uh, I don't agree with a lot of the philosophy. Uh, but anyway, so the progressivism is uh, that progressivism, utopianism, is a modern phenomenon for sure, and this politicization that uh, progressivism leads to goes hand in hand, of course, with the democratization uh, that I mentioned earlier of societies. Mm. Utopia, by its very definition, needs to incorporate everyone. Uh, everyone needs to be part of it, or it's not a utopia, because it's a sort of absolute state. And that being the case, uh, progressivism has this sort of uh, totalitarian uh, aspect to it, because mm. everyone has to conform to the particular development of society. And so that necessarily also leads to the politicization of everything and of and of everyone. So I think progressivism has um, has this politicization you mentioned almost as a part of its very concept of its very uh, raison d'être, you could say. Mm. I, I found, on that very tangent, I, I found it very interesting to 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 note that people or, or countries or cultures that are more uh, connected to the Anglosphere seem to be, for various reasons. Uh, uh, I, I will offer, uh, I, didn't, I, I think, my view on this, but but for various reasons, seems to be um, more prone to to have an oikophobe stance. And, and talking as a Swede, we are one of the most, uh, you know, uh, I, I wouldn't say we are the, the best Anglo, you know, English speakers outside uh, the Anglo world. Uh, the Dutch probably are, but 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 since we are such a small uh, trade dependent nation, we have this sort of. Uh, 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 cultural uh you know myopia in a sense that you know uh the swedish culture is is not worth uh, much uh, and and since the dominant culture of the world is is uh, the anglo-american one we have adopted it uh, and hence uh 
intellectual trends come here very fast, uh, as well as fashion and other things. But the, the interesting thing for me is that all the, the, the countries, especially this is true in Europe, I think, but the Protestant Northern European countries uh, tend to be the one who are have a history of progressivism, but but uh, it's interesting because you, you spend a lot of time writing about the, 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 the Frankfurt School and, 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 and the various uh, Marxists uh, and, and uh, post-colonialist and post-modern thinkers that came out of the, the Frankfurt and also uh, uh, French uh, intellectual uh, circles in the 60s and 70s and before that. But these countries, especially like France, s- seem not to be as afflicted by this than, for instance, Holland or Sweden or other countries. So I found fascinating that the countries who have a, a sort of cultural history of, of maybe being the most missionary, being the most Protestant, most, uh, I'd say, uh, not evangelical in a sense, but, 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 but probably most hardcore believing. I mean, people won't know this who aren't Swedish, but, but in the 1700s, people, the Swedish church was basically like the Taliban. Visits by the parish priests to 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 do the catechesis every 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 other week, and and this is I mean a fact that uh, Sweden and I as a Swede feel it's very interesting to look at these cultural and religious tendencies and see that you know uh, America who has uh, you know uh, 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 a slightly different obviously history but has a sort of same crusading uh, or or missionary spirit in it. Uh, built in by by a very strong Protestant uh, culture or cultural past anyway that was very Protestant seem to share these sort of and I think many intellectuals have have, have sort of noted that that these sort of very um, progressive uh, and also missionary and zealous sort of leftist movements tend to come from these milieus and I would like to know your yeah. comments on this. Well, well, I think I mean. I think it's um, it's it's all in the it's all sort of in the nexus of egalitarianism and democratization and so on because Protestantism generally is more egalitarian and uh, I I think it's fair to say than Catholicism. Yep. Uh, the idea of direct communion with God as opposed to uh, going through a hierarchy of uh, of the priesthood and so on does raise the individual. Uh, in a certain sense, uh, I mean, uh, certainly the the Lutheran uh, branch of uh, uh, of uh, Protestantism is, of course, very strong on this. Uh, but Protestantism in general um, has a much more um, has a much more individualistic ethic uh, than Catholicism, which uh, tends uh, in a somewhat more um, in a somewhat more collective direction. Uh, and so, I think it stands to reason that this is yet another uh, aspect of the egalitarianism, democratization, and individualization, and therefore neo-fragmentation, if you will, of a society uh, that is very conducive to orcophobia and that raises every individual above inherited tradition, above cultural memories. Um, And so I think that's one big reason why the North European uh, countries, uh, the Protestant countries, are more prone to orcophobia uh, than than the South European countries, and why the United States as well certainly um, has this now, the United States is culturally diverse enough that, you know, we have this sort of split uh, here. I mean, the split exists elsewhere, too, but I think it's probably the strongest in this country, in, in the United States. Uh, but certainly, we do have the, the sense of egalitarianism is, of course, very ingrained here as well. And that's part of the of our Puritan, of our Protestant mm. Puritan um, 
uh, tradition. Uh, and so that's certainly conducive to orcophobia. Another reason why Northern Europe would be uh, more orcophobic than uh, Southern Europe is also that, of course, all the immigrants coming from outside of Europe, they prefer to settle in, uh, that, that's, a, that's a more immediate reason, but they prefer, of course, to settle in the wealthier Northern countries than in the Southern countries. And so there is more there is more room uh, in the northern in the North European countries to develop the sort of sensibility and 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 sensitivity toward other cultures than exists in in Southern Europe, which is why political correctness is stronger in much of uh, Northern Europe. In, in in many parts of Southern Europe, there are certain jokes that one can still make that mm. that would be sort of out of bounds in Northern Europe, um, and I think that's that's a part of that because in Northern Europe, everybody knows um, everybody has uh, various. Um, ethnic or religious minorities among their circle of friends or even in their families, which is less the case in places like Spain or Italy or certainly Portugal and Greece for that matter. Um, so I think those uh, that's an, an additional reason, a more, a more economic, socioeconomic reason uh, rather than a religious reason for why this would be the case. But I think both the economic and the, and the religious reason, the Protestantism that you emphasized, they both contribute to making okophobia more rampant in, in the Anglo-Germanic countries, uh, certainly than uh, uh, including the United States, then in the Latin countries, yeah. And 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 as you, sorry, and as you mentioned before, and as you uh, described very well, going back to to ancient Greek times, the fact that you know the welfare state is so dominant in in, in our societies, and 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 sort of has replaced any sort of uh, communal or, or or family interactions in that sense, has sort of. Uh, and again, you you always into this because we 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 the, the demands are are only only growing, uh, and and you know the gratitude towards the society is is I think following the opposite trend there. So hence the huge yeah, problem of, of 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 fragmentation in these societies. Yeah, because um, yeah, human nature again, it's human nature does not respond to uh, benevolence with gratitude, but with resentment generally, uh, and. Uh, that means that, of course, the kinder or the more uh, the more generous the state becomes, uh, the more uh, is expected of it. And once again, that also, of course, leads to individual self to individual aggrandizement because one ha one begins to feel that one has the right to uh, uh, to a certain standard, and that in itself serves to re replace the family unit with the with the individual as unit because. More traditionally, it is the family that helps out if a particular person is in trouble. It's not the state. Uh, if the, as long as it's the family that uh, does most of the heavy lifting, of course, the family uh, remains the primary social unit. Once it's the state, then of course it's the individual that does so, and individualism again then feeds into orcophobia, uh, which one must, which one should be able to say without being accused of at the same time also recognizing the virtues of individualism and and and, and of how the virtues of individualism have helped propel the West toward its present position. Uh, nonetheless, um, it does also feed into orcophobia at the same time. Uh, and um, and so welfare, the, the entitlement mentality and the welfare mentality certainly go hand in hand with orcophobia, yeah. This, um, what, what you discussed earlier about, about um, a certain stance towards foreigners or, or people outside of your own sphere of concern made me think of when you quote Plutarch describing Cato the Elder in, in your book, uh, saying that there's no greater joy than to walk on a Roman farm or a Roman field under a Roman sun with a fistful of Roman manure in his strong and Roman hand, all while muttering incoherently about those effeminate, artistic and 
quite obviously queer Greece. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, that uh, that line uh, is uh, became a popular one. As somebody else mentioned that as well. Yeah, but I'm sorry, w- w- was there a question there? I'm sorry, I was. Yes. Uh, so my my question then is like, given the need in a way to, I mean, or need. Given that having an hierarchical view and and like an an um, affection like affinity affection that is you 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 care for what is closest to you and then then that that solidarity in a way like goes outward and emanates but also dissipates outward. Hmm. Given given that then tendency that then holds and binds a society together, but then also how how societies and especially intellectuals in societies can provide reflexivity and like well these as you call them effeminate greeks have all have also a lot to offer us romans but then over time once you get into the late not late republic era but late empire era mm. th- that same tendency of criticizing society eventually leads to its fragmentation then of course the question coming up to today is i, I started thinking when when Kali was describing some of the economics and politics uh, and the cycles that we're in that you have in a way not just twitter cycles of attention but you have quarterly capitalism of economic attention you have four-year election cycles you have a, um, um, a generation span of say 40 years uh, of attention and, and then then as as each of these cycles repeats themselves and feed into each other i guess the question in a way coming up to where we are now is your description of cyclical hi- history or rather as you describe it as a helical as as in uh, the cycle returns returns but every time it's more progressive uh, if i understand correctly Yes. And what makes it more progressive over time is that you have the one factor that does change apart from human nature, human nature that does not change is technology. Uh, that we, we lo- learn new techniques and, and thereby we can create, well, at, at the very blunt level, more plenty for more people, essentially. Mm. Like the welfare state is, is a historical product of this process that is actually possible to do handouts. But then as you and Kalle have pointed to, that creates resentment, ironically, towards that same society. But uh, I guess the question I'm coming back to here is, given the, the progressive trajectory, then is the point here that you want to sustain the progress progressive trajectory but that at certain points in time those who would call themselves intellectuals or or feel a need to reiterate loyalty towards one's own civilization to then as it were like retreat back into a, a shell or or something that is is uh, possible to build upon again until you can restart the cycle basically i'm, I'm trying to pick apart like the, the helical model here yeah. that you set out right yeah and that's the really and that's why it's so difficult to um take a to have a strictly political read of the book because uh, if everything plays a part in this helical cycle then it stands to reason that one can see a virtue in it and yet it will still contribute to a particular development that one might not uh, like so much i mean since you mentioned cato Cato is is very reactionary and sort of jingoistic um and which obviously are are, are traits that i don't like so much uh, i mean i make fun of him a little bit maybe uh, but uh, but still he's but and yet at the same time cato himself was actually intellectual i mean he he spoke greek fluently and uh, and was quite uh, educated wrote uh, was inspired by greek uh, by greek rhetoricians and so on and uh, so he was well aware of these things and yet wanted to preserve his own cultural inheritance something like that sort of a position where you are welcoming of positive influences from abroad and yet at the same time strike a balance that is uh, sort of a, a salutary midpoint 
Uh, I, I think maybe Cato uh, probably erred a little bit on the side of the um, uh, of the uh, of the xenophobic erred, erred on the xenophobic side, I would say. Uh, but maybe someone like Aristotle is actually a better example uh, of um, of this sort of midpoint where one has rejected a certain part of one's own uh, tradition. I mean, for example, we know that Aristotle did not believe in the gods. He, he was not an atheist, but he didn't believe in any of the silly mythological stories and was very interested in science and so on. And yet, he also considered uh, Greek civilization to be superior to the Syrians in the north and and, and so on, uh, who are by Greek standards uh, very barbarian. Yep. But yeah, it's 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 not easy to pinpoint. But in the helical cycle, I mean, I generally for all the civilizations that I discuss, try to establish a sort of a midpoint, if you will, where there's no such thing as perfect balance, of course, where the um, two sides of xenophobia or ochophobia were just about balanced, or when the xenophobia, the most extreme xenophobia, had been abandoned, and the but the most extreme ochophobia had net had yet, had not yet been entered upon. Uh, there is such a midpoint uh, in the civilizations, and that's the sort of a midpoint that I think would be salutary. But uh, but of course, things always continue past that, and so it becomes difficult to uh, to stop. But but this is one point that I appreciated actually in your uh, piece uh, for the critic uh, there a while ago uh, that you try to emphasize this idea of the responsibility of the intellectual that one should not just sort of uh, establish this establish this trajectory but one should also try to then take sides if you will and try to actually effectuate uh, to some extent that's mid to to sort of um, let that midpoint of a, of a, of a society's uh, development percolate uh, and become something approaching permanent in one's own society the flip side of that is of course that it is precisely the sense of responsibility that certain intellectuals have that can lead into because people feel that, you know, the elite and the intellectuals feel that, well, they have to sort of take care of the people below them and introduce them to these to these new ideas that are supposedly better. But that's um, mostly, and I think that's a distinction one can make, I think that sort of sense of responsibility comes mostly from, from inner personal prejudice of what one would like society to be, rather than from a more dispassionate view of history, mm. which I think would be, would be a better foundation for the responsibility of the intellectual. I think a little bit, when I think about the um, this sort of uh, left-wing ochophobic sense of responsibility that intellectuals have. Um, I always think of uh, Hegel's, um, uh, what Hegel in the Phenomenology of Spirit calls the law of the heart, right? The Das Gesetz des Herzens, which is really all about how people want whatever law rules in their own hearts to be the law for society as a whole. Mm. Yes, uh, and I think that's the. It's he's basically in different terms describing not maybe so much um, okophobia specifically, but he describes what we would today would call wokeism. Yep. and because he sees a form of it in his own day, this idea that whatever one considers justice or whatever one considers right in one's own heart should obtain for all of society, and and this is the sense of responsibility that intellectuals of the that okophobic intellectuals tend to feel. But again, I think it's I think it's a false sense of responsibility in the sense that I think they uh, misattribute its. Sort Source. I think it really just comes from within them, uh, and that it has very little bearing in history. Whereas, if one looks at the uh, at the helical view of history uh, that you mentioned, one can more easily establish what is an aberration and what is quote unquote more normal or a healthier state. Because mm. if one looks at the helical progress of history, one can see that, of course, nothing ever stays the same. So in that sense, everything is an aberration in the sense that everything keeps moving away from what was previously the case. But if one sees all of the phenomena that go along with that aberration, such as self-faith and, and fragmentation and so on, one realizes that it is a type of aberration. And so I think a view of the helical movement of history can help one establish an intellectual responsibility that is more based on what has actually happened in the past 
more than on what one thinks is right in one's own heart. Uh, and so one sort of has to go beyond oneself a little bit. Just, just to clarify also, Khaled, do you want to jump in? No, go ahead. Okay, o- on this point of the, what did you say, the, the politics of the heart or the will of the heart? Uh, the, the law of the heart. Uh, that's yeah. uh, Hegel's term, yeah. You asked earlier, Benedict, if, if the politics for me or, or Kala had changed. And I think the one point on which I do have changed is to shift the understanding of politics as what is a core important to me as opposed to what's important to others or society at large. And I think this one of the hallmarks that is is a difficulty in progressive movements is to bypass your own priorities or, or your sense of your own the, the sincerity by which you want to approach politics. Thereby, you simply you 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 make difficult the, the possibility of even understanding your opponent. And mm. I can see this from also like instrumental point of view that it's very difficult to fight extermination wars against people who you can uh, empathize with. You you would rather have the world in very like binary terms like black and white good and bad um but but i think what is what what i find promising about the helical view of history is in a way that rather than arriving at like nostalgic view of how society used to be i mean both you kind of talked about the uh, lamented over the state of the the Twitter um, pestering the the, the media, media environment, but also how educated people used to be. But if there is a helical view, then in a way it, this, to me, vindicates every study from its instrumental point of view also of the ancients, uh, of the philosophers of the past, because these things will, the, the phenomena they describe will in some shape or form recur in society later on, uh, regardless of what p- uh, technical changes we go through. Mm. And thereby putting yourself on the sideline of history in a way to understand that okay the politics we're talking about here is actually maybe over the course of 250 years which will be the rise and fall of the roman republic and then they try uh, successfully remake themselves into a roman empire that's also like the stretch of 250 years and then going to new crisis so it's it's it gives i'm not i'm not trying to sugarcoat this in any way but well i hope i'm not doing it but but in a way it allows you to think of politics from say 250 years is not an eternity i mean it's a very long time but it does make sense then why you build schools why you create education the way you do why you train your body and and subsequent bodies in that society so to me the helical view is actually like this silver lining to what is otherwise a very tragic outlook on what we're going through and will Mm. go through also i think it's important to get the conversation to that but why, I'm not sure I understand though, so why is it a silver lining in the sense, because you mean, because it means that we're not stuck in this particular pattern, things keep moving. I'm not sure I see the positive aspect of it. But positive in this, yeah, but positive in the sense that, that I mean, if you say, if you take a conservative point of view, I mean, these days, um, I, I do have a lot of conversations with those. And there's this idea of the, the slow defeat in which mm-hmm. there is this golden age and oh, we're just trying to blow hot, lovely air on dying embers mm-hmm. uh, instead of this like keeping a fire going. But it, in a way, it's like just because things used to be, I mean, take academia, for instance, the universities. One of the hardest times being or trying to be an intellectual is mourning what academia has become before there is something to take its place or being part of building that. In a way, the fact that we're having this conversation and have only interacted with each other through quite heresy-oriented outlets and the fact that troubles you've gone through in putting this book out there in the university press could also be mentioned here.
here is sort of some of the sign of the times in a way and we could we could um lament that state but we can also approach it as like no this is mm. the conditions under which we can labor and by which our not just it's not just the way we do things but our de- our ideas are actually derivatives of that we need to work in different ways we wouldn't have arrived at these arguments had it not been for the difficulties in a way i'm not trying to make this more heroic than i'm i'm usually thinking of myself but like do you see in a way like what i'm trying to approximate here yes no i understand you yeah um no and and i uh, that's uh I certainly uh, like that a lot, that idea. And it goes a little bit uh, also together. I spoke earlier about being sanguine uh, f- uh, about one's own particular state and situation by taking the broader view. And I think that goes maybe a little bit toward that. This is something may- that maybe also distinguishes me from some um, uh, conservatives uh, with whom I often speak, uh, namely that they uh, take a very um, dark view of what's going on right now. And, uh, and basically America is finished and it's all over for humanity and so on. Uh, which is uh, yeah. So the helical view, in that sense, I, I see your point. Uh, can uh, can help us to um, to uh, kind of not just not to sound like a progressive here, but it actually can help us look forward in a certain sense uh, toward better times, and also um, make us understand that yes, even in this particular juncture of our history, we can st- we can still perform our labor. We can still, as we are doing, and and write what we do, and so on. I would maybe take uh, this is just parenthetical. Um, you mentioned 250 years. I think that's maybe a little. Uh, I don't know if. Uh, if if that's your own view, or you take that from Glob, uh, this uh, popular uh, essay uh, is his name Glob. Yes, yeah, this Glob. Uh, he talks about um, uh, two hundred fifty years, which I think is. Um, I, th- I think the two hundred fifty year framework is based on a fairly arbitrary um, division of civilizations, as Glob uh, uses them in his essay. I think some some uh, societies uh, depends on how we use words like society and civilization. Uh, but I, th- I think some entities were uh, last a shorter time, such as ancient Athens, and one can see the entire pretty much the entire ecophobic trajectory within ancient Athens uh, and some last longer uh, such as uh, the Roman Empire um, and, and yeah I, I, I treat the I treat uh, Rome as one sort of civilization from Republic through Empire um, rather than divide Republic from Empire but so I think the civilization the the cycle can can be of various lengths I guess so say that's my that's my reading of history anyway uh, mm-hmm. Uh, I know you're a historian, so you, you might uh, very well have a different view of that, which I, which I'd be interested um, to know uh, if that's the case. Just a brief clarification that, like, the reason yeah. why I think uh, view it from 250 uh, years is the shift from the Roman late Republic to the fledgling Empire, as it were, is also a change in the elite, the, the basis for the elite, from the optimalis to popularis, and uh, that Octavian or Emperor Augustus brings in, as it were, new blood into okay. the, the elite administration, which are more than happy to become more managers than, say, actual co- co- uh, co-competitors for power. Mm. Yes, yeah. exactly. Mm. Which the, the, the aristocratic families, the old uh, elite of the re- Republic, would have ill-stomached, essentially. But it's only possible to do that trick uh, or sleight of hand if you do sh- make a change in elites. Uh. And in a way, I mean, the meta language that we're uh, discussing uh, in in the manifest podcast somehow is like, how did Sweden end up in this situation? How are, <laughs> what happens after the Social Democratic Party, which has been the father, the mother, and the brother of uh, all Swedes <laughs> as long as we can remember? It's kind of like a year zero that we, that is now coming to an end in a way. Okay, right? Yeah, no, I see. It's. I think you're. Of course, regardless of the exact time frame, I think the point you make um, certainly is a valid one. Uh, regardless about the uh, why the helical movement can be caused for optimism, 
uh, in a certain sense, I hope the time frame is wrong because I think the United States is going to turn 250 in just a couple of years, actually. So uh, let's uh, let's hope our cycle extends for a bit longer. But um, but yeah, I think it can be. Um, if not a cause for optimism, then certainly for a certain uh, for a certain calm for a certain um, yeah. So, so you don't see yourself writing a piece uh, uh, like now the um, American Republic is over, long live the American Empire. <laughs> well, of course, there you see one does see, especially now from the left with the rise of Donald Trump, uh, a great fear of the sort of uh, of the rise of a new Caesar. Um, if hmm. you, I, I think those uh, fears are overblown, um, but I'm not saying it can never happen uh, uh, in the future at some point. Who knows? But uh, I don't think uh, we have that uh, as an immediate uh, as an immediate danger. I think yeah, I think in in many ways the left wing Democrat elite has been much more um, I would say much more, but I would say significantly more um, Caesar like or Caesarian in its in its behavior than the populist right, actually, in my opinion. Mm. So uh, so I don't think that that's uh, a real danger. Um, uh, I think I think if I well maybe not get into too much immediate politics, but I think I, uh, President Biden uh, is quite a bit more totalitarian than than President Trump ever was, in my in my opinion. But so I, I don't think it's a, a great danger from either direction uh, at this point. But of course, the Roman Empire is uh, is an example of that of how a particular a particular people or a particular society had become so diverse and so uh, diffused that only uh, a strong man was able to keep everything together. That's certainly something that could happen. Uh, but I don't think it's uh, I don't think we're close to that moment quite yet. Uh, and as and that can also help one to be grateful for what one for what one has. Uh, you talked about the positive view of of uh, the helical construction, and it's I think it's certainly something that can help one be grateful, regardless of what historical cycle one lives in. And I think that's something that is lost on the orcophobes, namely that sense of gratitude uh, that one should have for everything that we enjoy at present, and also for everything that has come before us and that has allowed us to be what we are. <laughs>